if we read the scriptures. Just to give you a context of the Hebrews, let me ask you a question. Let's say uh, Elder Tom, let's make it real. Let's say Elder Tom receives a letter from the OP headquarters from Willow Groves, Pennsylvania. And the letter says, this is from Foreign Missions Committee, asking Elder Tom that the committee planted a church in Africa some time ago and in a remote village, and the church has been growing. But because of persecution and much pressure from the elders of the village, Many of the church members were just reverting back to their old religion. And many people are leaving the church. So the committee is asking Elder Tom Harmon to travel to that village and to encourage the people to come back to church and profess their faith in Christ. Now what would Elder Tom do? What would you do if that was the situation and the context? And that really is the context of the Hebrews. It is named the Hebrews because the recipients were the Jewish Christians who were reverting back to their old customs and religions, falling back, backsliding, And what can you do if you're a missionary, if you're a pastor, if you are an evangelist, if you're an elder, deacon, what would you do? If a bunch of people are leaving church, what do you have as a weapon? What weapon do you possess? You have the Word of God. You have the means of grace. You have prayer, and you have love. That's all you have. It's an impossible task. Every Sunday, I do an impossible task every Sunday. Elders of the church, they do every day. Maybe you do not see that, but behind the scenes, they, what they do, what we do, is an impossible task. It's just not us, parents. You face an impossible task to raise up your children in the instruction of the Lord. And as you realize that is an impossible task, you will pray. You'll be faithful, but you will pray. And that's what the author of the Hebrews is doing. He has no weapon but the word, but the gospel, but the preaching of the gospel to the group of people who are backsliding. So let us read these few verses for us. Hebrews 10. This is the conclusion of the previous chapter. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, there are three let us, let us, let us in the following verses. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Oh God, the spirit of the sword, the word of God is read. I pray that you will do the operation in our own hearts to divide and to reveal the deepest thoughts within. Make it bare before you. And I pray that just as the author of the Hebrews used the gospel, I pray that you will use the same gospel to renew our hearts this day, this morning. For your glory is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. That's right. That's the context. I don't know what you have felt as you were reading these verses. There's nothing really new. Nothing really surprising. But as you could see, throughout the chapters, the author of the Hebrews, we do not know who he is, but he's, he's been arguing for one thing, that Jesus is superior to all of the Old Testament, superior than the angels, superior than Moses, all the sacrificial system, priests and bloods of bulls and goats. Jesus is superior. And in his conclusion, he says all of that, and he gives us, he gives them three exhortations. Let us, let us, let us. I'll be speaking on the first part, first three verses, which is the doctrine. And the applications will flow out of that doctrine, and I will leave it up to you to figure it out, to ponder upon it. And even men's group, think about how you could apply those verses. But I will spend my time in first few verses, but especially the first verse. What is there for us to renew our hearts? 
I am telling you, nothing but the blood of Christ. No programs, no events, no conferences will do the job. It is constantly going back to Christ and His gospel through the blood of Christ. And you pray that God will renew your hearts every day. That's, that's the only way. It may not be exciting, but I'm telling you, that is the only way. I've studied this in obviously in seminary, but I don't remember much from the seminary training. But in my D-Mean course at Ligonier, I had a privilege of listening to D.A. Carson for one week on this book alone, the book of Hebrews. Five days. D.A. Carson, you may not know, but is the premier theologian of our time of the New Testament, D.A. Carson. And he said one thing that I remember. If you want to know the quality of the first century sermon, that's the Hebrews. Many of the, many of the letters that Paul wrote, it is an epistle, it's a letter. But uniquely in the New Testament, not many people know that. People think of Hebrews as an, uh, another letter, a general epistle. But toward the end, 13.22, he says this was an exhortation. So we categorize the book of Hebrews as a sermon. Very difficult sermon. The hardest book in my perspective in the New Testament. In our church, three things are going on today. That is the reception of the members, men's group, but we were planning on doing the Lord's Supper. So I wanted one stone for three birds. And this is the text. Um, we postponed the Lord's Supper because this Thursday, I wanted to test out my strength. So I walked a dog. But when I came back home, I was feeling very dizzy. So I talked to Tom, Elder Tom. And last Sunday, too, I was caught off guard because I was feeling very dizzy. Um, so, you know, when I am speaking slowly, even today, it's not because I'm not excited about the gospel, but I am trying to conserve my energy. And I will take it all the way up to the end of March. I take it very slow. Three reasons and three applications. Look with me in the verse 19, what it says. This is the conclusion of all that he has been saying up to this point. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's the starting point. That's the reason. That's the foundation. For let us, let us, let us. But the foundation is that we have confidence to enter the holy 
places. For a moment, let's talk about the holy places that you see here. Where is that? The backdrop of this discussion, starting from chapter 9, is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So, when we read from verse 19 that we, as Christians, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we are thinking about that direct and intimate place of worship with our God that has been opened up by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we think of this holy places in plural as a place of worship, like today, like in your home, at your home in, in your private worship, that now, unlike the Old Testament Jewish people, we have direct access to the throne of God. So we have that confidence to enter into the holy places, meaning an intimate place of worship. So we tend to think about that holy places in abstract and theological terms, which is not wrong. But, if you have been reading from the beginning of the Hebrews, I do not have time to go through all of it, but I will give you a few passages for you to think about. The Hebrews have been arguing for consistently one place that Jesus had gone in. First reference is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. We, that's... Christians, we have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Once again, the imagery is the tabernacle. So we have this hope to enter into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. The same thing that we have just read from 10.19. And verse 20 of 6 chapter says this, Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner, because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we enter into the inner sanctuary. Where is that? Talking about that intimate fellowship and worship. Verse 20, Jesus has entered there. Where is that? Did Jesus go into the inner sanctuary of the Old Testament? Did Jesus go into the Holy of Holies? Jesus never went into such a place. What is this place that the book of Hebrews is talking about Jesus has entered there. Conclusion of the matter is spoken in Hebrews 9.24. It says this, For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands. Did you hear that? Holy places. There's that reference. Same word. For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands, 
mere copies of the true ones, but where? Into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Very important that you understand that. This is a very difficult argument that the book of Hebrews is doing. But let me go back and give you a few more references. Consistently, book of Hebrews is teaching and arguing that Jesus entered a certain place. It is not an intimate place of worship in an abstract theological sense, though it includes that. Hebrews 4.14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Hebrews 8.1 Now, the main point in what is being said is this. We have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, verse 2, a minister in the holy places. Same reference. He's a minister in the holy places and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, and when you go back and read chapter 10, verse 19, that we... What we have just read. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, we come to understand that what this verse is talking about is that we have confidence to enter the holy place where Christ has entered already. And that place is, as it was taught in verse chapter 9, verse 24, Jesus has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So it is not merely talking about that we have confidence to enter into the holy places where we have this genuine spiritual worship with our, with our God. Yes, that too. But we have full access to the place where Christ entered, that is the heaven itself, the true tabernacle pitched by God himself, and he is a minister in the holy places. All these references is pointing to God's presence. What does that mean? It means our worship takes place here and now. 
For us, PS-174 in this physical location. But we have confidence to enter the holy places, not in a spiritual worship in this sense only, but an actual place we have access to. Because Christ inaugurated that path for us. Where is that? We are talking about heaven itself. So we worship here. But we look up and our worship takes place in the very presence of our triune God. That's the access point. That's where we have access to. Not simply to, once again, spiritual worship of the New Testament church. Which obviously is included in this verse. But I want you to look up. That we are seated in Christ in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 2 talks about. And you and I, we have such a direct access to the throne of God even now. We have that confidence. So we look up. It is a spiritual act of worship that takes place in the heavenly throne of God. But also, we look forward to that day that is in eschaton, in the last days, that Jesus inaugurated for us through his flesh. And one day we will go to the same place, the holy places or true tabernacle, whatever you want to call it, with body and soul, with resurrected body and soul, we have that confidence to enter into the heavenly places in the last days, the day of resurrection. So that's the confidence that verse 19 is talking about. I'm reminding you that the Jewish Christians are hearing this, and with the aid of the Holy Spirit, they will truly see the privilege that they have in Christ Jesus, that they have access to free spiritual worship. You do not need high priest. You do not, you do not need Yom Kippur. You do not need anything else. But you go directly to our God. But not only that, you and I, in some sense, in Christ, with Him, we are in the heavenly places even now. How fearful that is to think about our worship is taking also taking place in the heavenly places. But looking forward to that day of resurrection that we will also be in the holy places. And God will use those verses to encourage those Christians 2,000 years ago. And I pray and hope and pray that God will encourage you. What gives you the spiritual energy today? that your hearts will be renewed with joy and strength, that you will worship God and serve God. The gospel, the word of God, the Holy Spirit. So if you want to serve God with full strength, only means of grace that you have is to read and meditate upon these verses. You spend more time in it, your level of strength by the grace of God will go up. And with that, you will serve God.
Let me just make a couple of comments in verse 20, verse 21, and I'm going to go back to verse 19 and spend a few more minutes again. Look at verse 20. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We know in his death on the cross that veil was torn. Veil, he's talking about his flesh. Now, that veil had to be, had to be torn apart. Why is that? Because in the tabernacle, there are two veils. There's a gate to enter into the yard. And in the yard, what do you see in the tabernacle? There's another square tent. That's holy place. That's the first veil. You open it up and you go into that square box, and there's another veil. That's the holy of holies. Whenever Aaron and the, great, the high priest, when they entered, they had to go through first one to enter into the holy place. And there's another one that only he goes into that place once a year, right? But when he comes back, when he goes in, it covers back again. It closes it again. It closes again. That's why it had to be torn apart once and for all. No more curtains. No more barriers. Just that is done through the body of Christ. Verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God. That's Christ, correct? Up until now, he's been talking about Jesus as the great high priest. But in this place, he says Jesus is a great priest. Great, all-around great priest. There's nobody else like him. Over the house of God, oftentimes we think of high priest as offering sacrifices. But high priest orders the entire tabernacle for the glory of God. So Christ, as the head of church, he's in charge of the house of God, and that house of God is talking about invisible, heavenly sanctuary. He's in charge. All that takes place in local churches, good and bad, it is under the authority of the head of the church, Christ. So you and I, we take comfort in that. So a couple of comments on that. But let's go back to verse 19 because I want to talk about the blood of Jesus. These verses are not eye-catching verses. Very simple, very basic truths. But I want you to see the glory of God that is contained in these verses. First thing that we talked about was the holy places that it is talking about. It was referring to the heavenly places. But by the blood of Jesus, I mean, we know blood of Jesus so well. So what do you do when you read this? You just read it. It does not move you. Oh, blood of Jesus. I know blood of Jesus. So let me talk about that blood of Jesus for the remainder of our time. When we talk about the blood of Jesus, the dominant concept of blood of Jesus is washing. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We will sing that 
after sermon. So we think about the blood of Jesus as, well, blood of Jesus, precious blood of Jesus washed me. That's why I go to heaven. And we move on. How do you wash something? What do you mean when you say, my sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus? I could think about two modes of cleaning. One is bathing, pouring over yourself. When you take shower, you pour over you, the water over you. So is that how Jesus' blood washes you? Is, there, is that how it functions? It washes you when you pour over yourself? Symbolically, yes. Another thing that I could think of is when your clothes is dirty, you hand wash it. And as you wash, you dip it in the water and then you wash it with soap or something. So when we think about the blood of Jesus, that's what we think about. We either pour over ourselves the blood of Jesus, so that's how we are washed. Or we just dip it and just wash it like this. So somehow just we are washed by the blood of Jesus. Yes, yes, let's move on to the next thing. But when you read Exodus and Leviticus and even Hebrews chapter 9, how does the blood of the sacrificial animals are used to purify? Do you know? What's the dominant imagery? How do you purify something in the Old Testament? It is not really by pouring. It's not really by dipping. But it is by what mode? It is by sprinkling. You dip it and sprinkle, either with your own hands, or you put hyssop that works like sponge, and you put it, dip it, and you sprinkle like this. So if you are receiving those, receiving those bloods, you are actually soaked when priest sprinkles the blood upon you. That's how it is cleansed. Not by pouring the blood over you. Not by bringing your clothes into the blood and wash it. But you sprinkle. Now, it really does not matter whether you know this or not. Because the end result or the efficacy of the blood of Jesus is what? Salvation of your body and soul forever. But what I am trying to correct is that we pass over this as if that we are, we are accustomed to, we know it. Even read from Hebrews chapter 9, it refers to this. Hebrews, same Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 21. In the same way, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, he sprinkled with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with, with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now when you read from chapter 9 and you understand the blood of Jesus that he's talking about is really the imagery of the Old Testament sacrificial system, you are forced to go back and read those Old Testament texts. And when you actually begin to investigate those sections, this, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
few more things are highlighted. It's not simply blood. We wash ourselves with the blood of Jesus. Yes, symbolically. But in the Old Testament, whenever that blood is sprinkled, three things are happening, and it deepens our understanding of Jesus' blood. First is the mediator. Second is the substitutionary atonement. And the third is the covenant. All of that is taking place. First is the mediator. When we think about the blood and the sacrifice, we think immediately about Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1 talks about offerings, various offerings. But the very first sprinkling of the blood happens not in Leviticus chapter 1, but in Exodus chapter 24 by Moses, the mediator between God and the Israelites. Hebrews chapter 9, the reference point is Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 19, they arrived at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai. 20 is 10 commandments. Chapter 24 is the covenant making with the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. And who is sprinkling what? That's the point that I'm trying to make. We think about Jesus' blood washing us. But sprinkling of blood happened in Exodus 24 by Moses, and he sprinkles this. Look, listen to this, Exodus 24, verse 6, 7, and 8. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, the Israelites said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So, in response to that obedience, so Moses took the blood, and guess what he does? And sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, what does it say? The blood of the covenant which Yahweh has cut with you in accordance with all these words. Moses stands in between God and the Israelites. Obviously, the only mediator between God and man is man Christ Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But in the Mosaic dispensation, he works as the type of mediator between God and the Israelites. You know that. But it is on the foot of the mountain where the first sprinkling of the blood happens. Not in the Leviticus. And what is highlighted? Who's sprinkling? It is not the Israelites sprinkling themselves. It's not the priests. Not yet. It's not the high priest. Not yet. It is Moses the mediator. Later on in Leviticus, who stands between God and Aaron? It is not Aaron. God does not talk to Aaron directly until the latter parts of the Pentateuch. Really, it is God always speaks to Moses, and Moses, you tell Aaron. Remember that? And before, the, before Aaron and his sons are consecrated as high priests and the high priests after him, who is sprinkling blood upon them? Guess who? 
It is Moses highlighting Moses' role as, as a mediator between God and Israelites and God and Aaron the high priest. So Leviticus chapter 8 verse 30 says this, So Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the, on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons, and on the garments of his sons with him. And he said, who? Moses set Aaron apart as holy, his garments and his sons and garments of his sons with him. So all the high, high priests, Aaron and after him, and the priests, whenever they are consecrated, their tunics will have blood stains upon them. I don't know if it goes out by washing it. I'm sure there is a stain. It's not a clean. They clean it, but when they come, they are sprinkled upon with the blood. Aaron shall bring the near bull of sin offering. Leviticus 16, 14. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkling, sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Actually, that is for him, himself. And he goes out and he brings the blood of the goat again and now for the people. And he will sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He does it twice. For himself, and he brings another blood and he does it again for the sins of the people. So first thing that we remember from the, by the blood of Jesus, this blood is the blood of the mediator. Far better than the blood of goats and rams, but he shed his own blood to open up the door for you. That's something that should be in the back of your mind. Second thing is that the blood... Why do you think that the blood will purify, sanctify, cleanse, make it hollow, to set it apart? Why? Is it because God loves blood? Is it because there's some kind of chemical function? Obviously not. We forget that. But the passageway to the Holy of Holies, that even the high priest could go only once a year, Outer door, first veil, second veil. To the presence of God, he has to go through each stage, not by open sesame, not by dancing, not by singing, but each and every time those veils are opened and he does not die because he's sprinkling blood. And the idea is this. idea is that it is a blood passage. Why is that? It's not because God loves the barbecue smell, though sometimes it says it's a fragrant offering to him. He's pleased with the aroma. But it really is talking about he has access to the Holy of Holies because something else or someone else has died. So there is a substitution, substitutionary bleeding that is dying. Something died on your behalf. That's why he does not die. That's why these Israelites bring these goats and rams. Why? Because God loves the smell? God loves the blood? No. 
They are accepted because that ram has died in your place. And because of the substitutionary atonement that is looking forward to Jesus' atonement, that's why God's people are atoned by the blood and God's wrath is satisfied. So to approach God, something or someone else had to die. That's the principle that we see as old as from Genesis 3.21 to the sinful couple. What does God do? Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. You want to come to God? Biblical God requires blood. That's biblical Christianity. Always. From the beginning. From Genesis. And when we read from Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, what should you remind yourself with is this? First is the mediator's blood. Second, it is substitutionary blood shedding. So it's not some kind of um, power in the blood, but that Christ died in your place, just like all these animals used to be. The precious blood of Jesus gives you an access. Why? Because he's the Son of God. I loved what John Brown called it. Our God is a reconciled divinity. It's from 1700s. Our God is a reconciled divinity. When you think about how casual we are in our worship, how sometimes mindlessly we participate in worship as a habit, as a custom, how can you renew your heart by meditating upon the blood of Jesus? And what kind of blood was it? It is the mediator's blood. It is the substitutionary blood. He died, his blood. That's why I have access to enter into heaven itself by the blood of Jesus. The last one is this. When we think about blood, we do not think about the covenant. And I am not talking about the covenant because I am in the OPC, because I, you know, I like covenant theology and so on. But what did Jesus say? The night that he was betrayed, he took the cup, and what did he say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I mean, that's what Jesus said, which is poured out for you. So he saw his death as blood pouring, but he did not simply say, this is an atonement, that's it, I am dying in your stead. Obviously, that is that. But he says, my blood is the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. What does that mean? To ratify and seal the covenant, the blood was required. That's why in the Old Testament, the verb is to cut the covenant. You do not make the covenant. You do not establish a covenant. You do not promise a covenant. Karath is always the cud, referring to the animal cud. 
from Genesis 15, an animal is cut and flaming torch passes through it, and that blood. So when we hear it here, that by the blood of Jesus, and let me just give you once again, Hebrews, same Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 19, uh, verse 14 and 15 and following. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So I will stop. When Exodus 24, when he was sprinkling the blood upon the Israelites, behold, the blood of the covenant, you see. Whenever blood was shed, the covenant of grace was ratified and sealed. And in the covenant making, God is gracious, is monergistic in one sense, but also is synergistic in the second sense that it requires actual obedience from the people of God. So with that, I want you to remember verse 19 the privilege and confidence that we have in Christ's blood. And just like the Old Testament people, we shall say, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will obey. That's the right response to the atoning blood of Jesus. And we have confidence, you and I, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And with that, let us worship and serve our God and meditate upon those three let us, let us, let us. Let's pray.